Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 53. Hear now God's Word. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. As we see in this, the beginning words of this text, the Bible is a record of God speaking to his people. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But there are clear consequences to both. God didn't just speak to his people a long time ago. He is still speaking, for his word is living and abiding. God had us in mind when he spoke these words, when they were recorded in Scripture. And so here again, what God says to his people. He says, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, Destroy their engraved stones, destroy their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Now certainly there are local and particular and historical uh, context here, uh, speaking to God's people here in, uh, as, they, as they go into the plains of Moab. Uh, But also there are implications for us wherever we are, in the times we live, in the land we live in. Why did God have his people do these four things? I want you to think about that. Do you think that God wanted his people to cancel the Canaanite culture? Of course he did. And I want to suggest that he still wants his people to do the same, to demolish all their high places. God is requiring the children of Israel to remove every potential rival to his rule in their hearts and all obstacles to true worship. This is warfare, and warfare takes place at many levels And it takes place all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. The current attempt to cancel the American culture should not surprise any of us at all. Actually, it's been going on for quite a long time. This is so much deeper than most of us can imagine. This is total war. My old friend Douglas Jones wrote what I'm about to read over 20 years ago, still very applicable. He says, to be a Christian is to be in constant total war. I have to say, I have no, excuse me, I have no say in the matter and no one is exempt from serving. This war is not just some sideline feature of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Every step towards seeing every knee bow before the Lord of glory is an act of war, whether in faithfulness or hatred. Until that point, the war is ruthless and relentless, 
The horrific enemy onslaught never ceases. This war is not only constant, but total, unconfined, and overwhelming. It is not limited to the daily fight against our own sin, but encompasses everything within and without. It is not limited to our own or any one time, but rages in every corner of history. It is not limited to our own flesh and blood world and history, but is driven by dark clashes in heavenly places. And as this battle moves us along, killing and maiming, crushing and roaring, much of contemporary Christianity fights with bumper stickers and self-esteem seminars. As the enemy smiles and schemes to ravage our children and decapitate our churches, we try to play down our differences with our attackers and use their institutions as models for our own. Several weeks back, I started a sermon series which asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And I demonstrated from Scripture that the answer to that question is simple and direct. The problem with the world, and for that matter, the problem with you and me, is sin. Sin is simply not doing what God commands or doing what God forbids, and the wages of sin is death. Sin is what's wrong with the world, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only solution to sin. It's exclusive. There are no other solutions. So I am not backing off one iota in my pressing on the subject of sin because the Bible not only doesn't back off, it presses the point over and over and over again. But I will always move from there to the remedy, which is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is the good news. This is the message of the gospel. We are not embarrassed about God or the Bible. And I want to ask you, have you settled that issue in your own mind and heart? Now, I initially wanted to speak to you. I actually had this sermon prepared several weeks ago, and when we had some new circumstances in the community and in our because of the COVID situation, I decided to postpone this until we could all be gathered back. So I originally wanted to speak about uh, to the current cancel culture movement and its tearing down of statues and monuments. I soon recognized that the tearing down of a few statues was really only a minor symptom of what has been going on for a long time, and it's simply a current manifestation of the problem. I did notice the other day that once uh, President Trump issued an executive order regarding the tearing down of public monuments, which included big fines and possibly 10 years in prison, that activity has slowed down quite a bit. Uh, But we all know that symbols are important. And that's why not standing for the flag or the national anthem receives such polarized reactions. But if we don't learn to see what's behind all this and learn it fast, we, and especially our children, will not know who we are anymore. And I don't mean simply our American or Southern identity, 
that is the least of our problems. I mean our Christian identity and our Christian culture, which is at war, frankly, currently with a Marxist culture as the dominant idea. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing which exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Cultural Marxism has been at work since at least the 1960s and continues to advance at an alarming rate. In an article titled, The Problem with Cultural Marxism, authors David Curtin and Niall McRae say this, Cultural Marxists have no need to act as undercover agents for a hostile state, but as, quote, long marchers, They are careful not to explicitly state the destination. Saul Alinsky, author of Rules for Radicals, advised this, quote, True revolutionaries do not flaunt their radicalism. They cut their hair, put on suits, and infiltrate the system from within. Cultural Marxists don't dress as cultural Marxists, instead choosing the cloaks of liberal and progressive. The march is nearly complete. Since the 1960s, postmodernists have steadily gained influence and positions of power in the judiciary, education, policing, armed services, media, marketing industry, and corporate headquarters. Gradually, they have created a new political and cultural establishment. Their neo-Marxist beliefs are at odds with the outlook of the general public, whose traditional beliefs linger but the process of change is hastened through the educational system. The Jesuits said that if given a child until the age of seven, they could mold that child for good, lacking the critical faculties to scrutinize what they are told. Young children are often brainwashed. The humanities and social studies faculties at universities across the Western world began this crusade Back in the 1960s and 70s, students could read women's studies to learn why the patriarchy is bad and how to smash it, or gender studies to learn that heteronormativity is repressive and how to smash it, or race studies to learn how Western culture is evil and how to smash it. The existence of media studies in universities, despite its limited career value, is due to the prominence given to ideological narrative in, in academe. The BBC and liberal left newspapers are sophisticated propaganda machines. Though they claim to be news outlets, they are not. They are narrative outlets. The BBC has strayed from informing the public to manipulating public opinion. The progressive agenda is used to control the thoughts of listeners to affirm the acquiescent and uh, confirm the acquiescent to pursue to persuade the pliable and to disparage discredit and destroy any dissenters anyone who tries to point out 
cultural Marxism will quickly be labeled as far-right, which is a regular and reliable instrument of the culture war. Now, most of you have raised your children in the church and attempted to give them a Christian education. At the same time, forces have been at work to capture your children and to rip them from your arms. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll are powerful tools which are alluring like a worm on a hook. They want to cancel everything about the Christian culture, and we shouldn't get distracted by superficial issues like tearing down monuments uh, across the country. It's the Christian culture that is the real enemy. As clearly stated in my sermon a few weeks ago, all racism, I'm going to illustrate what I'm saying, all racism is a deplorable sin. And as true Christians, we must stand opposed to it at every point. Allegedly, the virtuous in our culture are trying to purge us of our racist past. It is true that many have been guilty of that sin, just as there are many, they are many other sins, and we would also call on people to repent of all their sins. Nevertheless, the current selective effort to go after past national leaders for their sins of racism has been selective, which belies the real motivation of many who are behind the riots and the revolution. So let me illustrate by giving you two quotes from very famous people on the subject of race. And tell me whether you think their statues should be torn down. Here's the first quote. At some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, as Professor Schaffhausen has remarked, will no doubt be exterminated. The, the break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the Caucasian and some ape as low as a baboon, instead of as at present between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. That's the first quote. Second quote. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out the idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. These two quotations are from Charles Darwin in his book, The Descent of Man, and Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood and Darling, Darlings, both darlings of the Marxist left. They gave us the theory of evolution, which is now established as fact, and Planned Parenthood, which continues to slaughter thousands of children every day. By the way, of the over 55 million abortions since 1973, uh, since in Roe versus Wade, 
25 million of those have been black babies. African Americans are just under 13% of the United States population. White women are five times less likely to have an abortion than black women. Do you think that's an accident? Do you see any of the Darwinian or Sanger statues being torn down or defaced? Moreover, their statues are the least of the problem. It is their ideas that have permeated our culture and continue to give us the fruit that we are currently seeing. The schools and the universities where we send our children are ready to tear down your children's high places and to establish their own high places in their hearts and in their minds. These are the virtual gods of the culture, and they will suffer no rivals. Tim Schrader sent me an article by Peter Heck, and he observed this in this article. Even by the most generous measurements, the intellectual and philosophical heritage of Charles Darwin is one of the most hideously racist legacies one can fathom. And yet his inherently racist dogma is not only presented in public schools across America, it is state and federal policy that every student in America demonstrate proficiency in understanding and applying his dangerous ideology. It is evident that we live in tumultuous times, but this really isn't all that new. History is full of twists and turns, wars and revolutions, winners and losers, and to the victors go the spoils. This includes the statues and the monuments which are erected or torn down, and it also includes the writing of the history books. This is why it takes a generation for a revolution to be completed. People have to be re-educated. Everyone has to become woke. But wokeness isn't new, just as injustice isn't new. And tearing down monuments and defeated enemies is nothing new. Many of us, for example... We'll never forget the image of the large statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled over by the liberated Iraqis. George Orwell's prophetic and disturbingly powerful book, 1984, observed that in the new utopia, I'm going to give four quotes. I'm rereading this book now. I read it in college. It was so disturbing and so powerful. And it's even more disturbing and powerful now. He says, every record, this is in a a society where history is being erased and reconstructed. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Second quote, And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, 
then the lie passed into history and became truth. He worked at the ministry of truth. And this quote, Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. The key figure in the book, Winston, says this, The past, he reflected, had not merely been altered, it had been actually destroyed. For how could you establish even the most obvious fact when there existed no record outside your own memory? And then the last quote as he worked at the Ministry of Truth, this last hole, this uh, this last was for the disposal of waste paper. He was talking about different places where they would, different categories, put things. Similar slits existed in thousands or tens of thousands throughout the building, not only in every room, but at short intervals in every corridor. For some reason, they were nicknamed memory holes. When one knew that any document was due for destruction, or even when one saw a scrap of waste paper lying about, it was an automatic action to lift up the flap of the nearest memory hole and drop it in, whereupon it would be whirled away on a current of warm air to the enormous furnaces which were hidden somewhere in the recesses of the building. This isn't fiction. I just ordered a t-shirt. Some of you may have seen it passing around. I couldn't resist. Please make Orwell fiction again. We are in real danger of forgetting who we were and who we are. Now, here's the main point of the sermon today. I've just been describing the problem. After reading about the amazing rise to power of Joseph in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, we see a remarkable turn of events. In fact, Joseph said this to his brothers, So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh. That's how powerful Joseph was. And Lord over all his house and a ruler throughout all of Egypt. That's Genesis 45.8. But it wasn't long after, after that that we read in Exodus 1 verse 8 this. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. The once powerful Hebrews soon found themselves enslaved. How could that have happened? Then after 400 years, God liberated them and he had, uh, admonished them saying this, but you shall remember that you were a bondsman in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Moreover, God also gave these instructions to them in Deuteronomy 4, 9, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. There is so much that could be said regarding what the Bible says about the importance of our remembering and instructing the next generation. Without this, we are no longer a people, and our children will soon be following other gods. You see, it's an old and a sad story, because forgetting is a sin when God commands you not to forget.
The Proverbs warn, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. God remembers and he calls all of us to remember. The Bible isn't just a history book, it is our history book, and we are called by him to diligently teach this history to our children and our children's children. We are to inculcate in them his stories, which are our history, lest we forget who we are and why we're here and where we're going. What if you suddenly lost all of your memories? Carolyn's experiencing that with her mom right now, with memory loss. What if you lost all your memories? You wouldn't know who you were. Somebody could, you're going to have to, redef, you'd have to redefine yourself. Well, the Bible, which is the living word of the living God, contains the collective memory of God's people. It's this word which lives and abides forever. And if we forget that, then we may as well forget the rest of it also because we will no longer know who we are. This is why the undermining of the Bible is the primary high place that the culture around us seeks to undermine and tear down. So in conclusion, we have to be countercultural vehemently countercultural. Of course, we should be godly and winsome and gracious and kind and full of the love of God. Those are our weapons, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. We should adorn the good news. Cornelius Van Til. Some of you heard this quote, but it's so good, I found another place to put it and say it again. There is not a square inch of ground in heaven or on earth or under the earth in which there is peace between Christ and Satan. And what is all important for us as we think of the Christian school is that according to Christ, every man, woman, and child is every day and everywhere involved in this struggle. No one can stand back refusing to become involved. He is involved from the day of his birth and even before his birth. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. If you say that you're not involved, you are in fact involved on Satan's side. And if you say you're involved in the struggle between Christ and Satan in the area of the family and in the church, but not in education, then you are deceiving yourself. In that case, you're not really fully involved in the family and in the church. You cannot expect to train intelligent, well-informed soldiers of the cross of Christ Unless the, Christ is, unless the Christ is held up before them as the Lord of culture as well as the Lord of religion. It is of the nature of the conflict between Christ and Satan to be all comprehensive. So while they're trying to demolish our high places, we need to be demolishing their high places. We have to, as I said, be radically countercultural. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Every now and then we sit down and ask ourselves some good questions. What's wrong with the world? Can it be changed for the better? Who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? 
And then if you're like most people, you grab a snack, sit down in front of the TV or play a game and forget about those good questions. The Bible describes this kind of person in James. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. What good are good questions if you never implement good answers? There's no better time to find out what people really believe and what they think is important than when there's some kind of a crisis. That's when we find out what our true religion is. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can't fight something with nothing. It has been said that liberals believe in history but not in God, while conservatives have believed in God but not in history. Well, I want to say to you, We are neither liberals nor conservatives. We are Christians, and we believe in God and history. Individuals who bear spiritual fruit will also bear cultural fruit. God speaks to the whole man, to the whole world. Therefore, we must deliver that word, 16 ounces to the pound, in season and out of season, because unapplied Christianity is no Christianity at all. The Christian faith has changed the world in the past, and it can do so again. Gary North wrote an outstanding book in 1981 titled Unconditional Surrender, God's Program for Victory. And this book was very influential for me and others. Tying it in with our text today from Numbers 33, North writes, One generation can always abandon its assignment. Israel did immediately after the deliverance from Egypt. God punished the whole generation except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. These two men alone recommended to Israel's leaders that they should invade the land of Canaan, that God had delivered the Canaanites into their hands. The other spies sent out by Moses came back to report on the giants in Canaan and the sure defeat, that sure defeat lay ahead. The incident is recorded in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Only Joshua and Caleb were allowed by God to enter Canaan. All the others died in the wilderness. Though one generation can abandon the dominion assignment, not all of them can. Eventually, a generation of Christians becomes convinced that their God is sovereign, that God's law is valid, that God's people are victors in time and on earth. When these opinions spread across a nation or a group within the nation, The blessings begin anew. The people cease wandering in the self-imposed wilderness. They turn back to God, His law, and His dominion assignment, and they begin anew the extension of God's kingdom in time and on earth. So here are four practical things you can do at your house to begin to overthrow the high places of our culture. First, it starts with leadership. 
Real leaders lead by example with both resolve and grace. Leaders are built, and you are being built. Trouble is coming your way, so you better look, uh, you better read a book, think some thoughts, and make some plans. Nobody plans to fail, but many fail to plan. Second, look and see where your high places are. What's really important to you and your family? Are your high places being built up or torn down? And one way you can answer this is by evaluating how your time and money are being spent. Third, read Hebrews 11, a hall of faith. You and your family, sit down and read that. Remember, this is your history. Deuteronomy 5.15, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. So do you and your children know your history? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And fourth, wherever you see some aspect of our pagan culture starting to crumble, give it a shove. Point it out. Tell the whole story. Numbers, we read today, drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy their engraved stones, their molded images, and demolish their high places. Or to put it in New Testament terms, here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity and the obedience of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our land is filled with idols and high places which oppose you and the gospel. Help us to see them for what they are and to stop sacrificing ourselves and our children to them. Moreover, may we stand against them and pull them down. Help us to remember our history and that we are your people. As the Apostle Paul wrote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing the sermon and thinking about what we call setting the table, getting ready to come here, I remembered an article that I read by Pastor Doug Wilson and uh, went and looked it up, and it was so good and applicable to what we just got through talking about and a great segue coming to the table. I want to share that with you. Um, He says there's another way, and that is to recover an understanding of the centrality and potency of true worship. 
So we're talking here about worship as warfare, as an aspect of warfare. The worship of the church, rightly understood, is warfare, and it's a mode of battle which unbelief has no effective means of resisting. This is because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is what our weapons do. But what are those weapons? When the history of redemption is finally and completely written, we will find that the world was conquered in the name of Jesus Christ by the means of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit empowering words, water, bread, and wine. The church functioning as the church and her identity as the church will in her meekness inherit the earth. This does not happen through law, but through the righteousness of faith. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God receives all glory through Christ Jesus throughout all human history, world without end, and he does so in the church. Everything belongs to us. The church, and this includes the world, life, death, the present, and the future. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to disciple the nations. The title deed to the world is in the hand of Jesus Christ, but the hand of Jesus Christ is part of his body, and we are that body. God gave Canaan to Abraham, but the sons of Abraham had to go in and take it. And in the same way, God has given all the nations of men to Christ as his inheritance, and Christians are called to manifest the reality of that reign in the world. This process of conquest does not make the world Christ. Uh, this conquest is accomplished by declaring that the world already is Christ or belongs to Christ. The nations are disciples through being told that the authority of Jesus Christ already includes them. They are then baptized and instructed in obedience in terms of that baptism. So the world is not conquered with a sword. The instruments of conquest, the weapons of our warfare, are word and sacrament. The worship of the church is not a religious meeting in a room with the assembled seeking to escape from the world outside. Nor is the church an army organized along the same lines used by the benefactors of the Gentiles. We have a battering ram about which the lords and princes of the world know nothing and every Lord's Day, we take another swing at their gates with it. We do this as we sit at the table, which has been prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. The church hearing the word preached is the church hearing the terms of conquest. The church at the Lord's table is the church ruling. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, Jesus said, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is because he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We are not kings and priests in the same way that a middle-aged businessman is the poobah of some fraternal order or other, nor are we kings and priests in the way that earthly rulers with what we call real physical power are kings and priests. 
We are kings and priests by virtue of our identity with Jesus Christ, the great king and the only priest. And this is why the weapons, our weapons are not carnal. And this is why there are no countermeasures. Amen. God, never let us foolishly think that any battle, spiritual or material, has been won by our power. Remove all pride from us and give us implicit trust in you and desire for you to have the glory. In the battles of this day, let us lean upon your arm and have true victory. Remind us of Israel's conquest of the land, that it was not by their own sword or by their own arm. You did not choose Israel because it was a great nation, a nation greater in number than any of the other nations, or more powerful, cultural, or intellectual, but because of your great covenant love. Keep us from saying or thinking, my power and the might of my arm have gained me this wealth. Neither let us be afraid or ashamed of the gospel, for it is the light of the world, proclaiming the saving work of the Savior and proclaiming the victory in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen.